I wish to thank you for inviting me to share this moment of Advent preparation in your parish. I have been looking forward for some time. Mostly parishes invite me in Lent if I am to speak a parish mission or a retreat. And Advent is regarded as a time which is too busy, even in a secular way, for parishioners to give themselves over to a spiritual passage. And I am grateful that your parish punctuates this holy season by taking time on a weekend to ponder the word of God and the mysteries of faith. It is an antidote to the secularism of our time that faithful Christians take this time out to observe the faith which was given to us and the mysteries which are revealed to us in the coming of Christ. It was advertised to be a parish mission dedicated to the theme of the desert, that the desert was the highway, the desert was the process by which believers were prepared to welcome God. The desert provides for us a kind of journey and an outline of a means and a medium whereby we are made more open to God's kingdom and more receptive to God's truth. And when I was considering to speak about the desert with you, I thought that I might readily start with the theme of Moses leading the children of Israel in the desert. For surely all of us realize that the exodus for 40 years was that original means of sanctification by which God took a people who had been slaves, who for centuries had been forgetful of God because of drudgery, and transformed them into a nation holy, and peculiarly his own in the world. Or I could have called upon the theme of Elijah, the prophet. For after all, Elijah acted as a kind of savior of the covenant of Israel, and reminded the forgetful children of Israel of the centralness of God in their lives and of the observation of God's law, the covenant. Elijah on the Mount of Carmel and Elijah in the desert of Sinai is a wonderful figure for us in Advent. And after all, that third desert figure, John the Baptist himself, is a kind of Elijah come back in the flesh as it were. The great figure of Advent, John the Baptist, who after all was raised in the desert. Imagine aged Elizabeth who bore him after she had weaned the child John, gave him to the desert, undoubtedly to the desert monks, the Essenian, who later would produce the Dead Sea Scrolls she gave her own son to them as part of the means by which Israel was made ready to welcome the work of God and the Messiah, the Christ, when he would come. And finally, Christ Jesus himself is a desert figure who begins his public life 
40 days and 40 nights fasting in the wilderness, in the desert waste, preparing to do what all of us must do in a certain sense. The desert prepared him for community life, a time of retreat, asceticism, prepared him for the genuine work of living amongst his own followers and in the company of those who claimed to belong to God. And if any of us want to exercise seriously the spiritual life, we had better know that the company of people who hold our own faith and worship in our own churches is a most difficult company to keep. And we ought not to pretend that we can follow God very far and go very long unless we know that it is a a desert-like asceticism. Sometimes just to keep company with our spouses and our children, with our parents and our families, with our neighbors and our parishioners and our pastors and so on. There is a desert-like aspect, an aridity, a barrenness, a surprising lack of refreshment, and a loss of comfort associated with all the primary commitments of life. Jesus was prepared not just for his cross by his 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. He was prepared for his disciples, who after all are the primary punctuation even of his suffering. For he would say to Pilate, If my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would be here with me now. And then he must have gestured. As you can see, he said, they are not. He was alone before his accuser, before his temporal judge. He was, if you will, deserted. And there is in the word desertion, hidden, the desert. And the hiding term desert is all to the point of desertion. Loneliness and rejection is to be deserted. And when Jesus would breathe his last and make his final outcry of human suffering and lamentation, he did not cry out, My God, my God, the nails. He did not cry out, My God, the scourges, the welts. He cried out, My God, abandonment, forsakenness, loneliness, rejection, isolation, desertion. And he was deserted, who began his public life in the desert. And it is right that we should follow him now in this Advent season through the desert. Let us not romanticize it too fast. Let us not go too far in making the desert a place of serene natural beauty. It is a place of supernatural beauty and a place of exquisite purity. But our first intuition of the desert will also be true If you have ever the pleasure to be stuck there, you are forsaken. 
it is apparently God-forsaken. And that is the kind of forsakenness of of which Jesus himself cries when he dies. But that place of greatest God-forsakenness is at the same moment the place of greatest godly affirmation, divine espousal and adoption. And Christ, the beloved Son of the Eternal Father, gives to us in his body the capacity for union with God by following us into that desert waste where we had been alienated from God and would have been alienated forever. He was in the end nothing more and nothing less than a good shepherd who followed the lost sheep into the lava waste into the desert desert wasteland. And in the desert, he found the one who was lost. But he was himself enduring the same losses for our sake and for our recovery. It is altogether inadmissible for a Christian to ever say, Nobody knows how I feel. We can say many things, and we can vent in many ways. It is a blessing to pray the Psalms of David, filled sometime almost with an apparent spirit of paranoia. And we can follow David far along the path of complaint and lamentation. And it might turn our greatest dis-ease into a prayer. But we ought not to say, nobody knows how I feel. We cannot look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ with even a smallest modicum of faith and really think or rightly say that we are alone in our suffering. In our suffering, most especially, we are adopted and we are espoused to God. In our suffering, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ is immediately provided for us as our reconciliation and our peace. Long ago, the prophet Isaiah had foretold it. He said, the day is coming when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like water covers the sea. And I used to marvel at that because it seemed to me that the knowledge of the Lord grows thinner upon the earth. Hardly a a vapor of the morning is the knowledge of the Lord over the earth nowadays and it soon evaporates by midday. But Isaiah said it will cover the earth like the sea. And so you and I must contemplate what covers the earth like the sea except human suffering itself. Turn on the news. Read the paper. Listen to the radio on your way to work. Or, far better, hold the hand of the unvisited grandparent 
and go to the place where they are suffering in hospitals unvisited and the orphanages and the asylums or just the unlovable neighbor unvisited. And then you will see how the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth in suffering. And it is in God's visitation to suffering that that which was alienation and despair, that which was the desert of human rejection and loneliness has become the garden of divine adoption and espousal. And if suffering can pray, imagine, if suffering can pray, just how much hope there is for our world after all. And that would be the secret that we would be bearing that the whole world is groaning to learn and all creation groaning to hear that human suffering is a means of prayer is holy that human suffering is redeemed and redeemable lovable and beloved and renders us dear to God Christ makes the means of reconciliation. I do not know why he doesn't remove our suffering when we ask. I, as I think many, perhaps not in this church, am so shallow that I would have rather that all the suffering were just taken away. But God is so profound and substantial that he has right and perhaps he alone has right to let the suffering be, but to make it the means of love, the medium of friendship, to make it the process of a desert passage whereby we come home at last, not just to who God is, but even to the truth of who we are. Home at last to the deepest truth within us and the highest truth of heaven. So I didn't want to talk so much about Moses and Elijah and John the Baptist. I didn't even want, if you will, so much to talk about the 40 days and 40 nights of the opening to the public life of Jesus. All of those are grand and great Advent themes. But I wanted to talk at least first of all tonight with you about our own desert passage the one we are already on, that predisposes us to hear the good news, the desert of our own suffering. And if it isn't our own as of yet, because somehow life has been remarkably kinder to us than to most, then at least we know the desert because we love someone who is traveling there. And our compassion for them is a greater share in their suffering, perhaps, than were it for ourselves alone. If you are a father and a mother, you might know better what I mean. If your son or your daughter suffers, you know quite well your son nor your daughter suffers alone. More exquisitely than they suffer, may you suffer who love them. So I wanted to speak about the suffering of the community of faith. Even 
if you will, more broadly than this, the community of natural human love. Because that community, that community is God's holy people. St. Augustine says, there are many that the church has that God has not. And many that God has, the church has not. And he means the visible, the institutional church. It's good news for fathers and mothers whose children have left the apparent institutional church. There are many that God has that the institution could not hold. But more ominously, for us who are here tonight, that we might be serious about what we do. Augustine adds, there are many that the church holds that God does not. Each one must take the Advent process seriously, without presumption. Each one must find true faith and true charity. The community to which God belongs is the community whose faith bears fruit. You know very well what St. John says of this miraculous community of faith. It is a community which is filled with love. He writes, Beloved, perhaps he could have written St. John the Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We are in the season whereby the birth of God is being prepared. We are entering into the season of welcoming him into the world. But who is born of God? Who can prepare for his coming and celebrate his birth save those who love? The community of faith is at once the community of the beloved. That is the celebration which welcomes God into the world. He adds below in the same paragraph, No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Where is Christ Jesus born? In the year of grace, 2007. In the hearts of relatively lonely people who nevertheless give themselves away, thinking that it is better to love someone else than to wait and be served. Better to take care of their needs than to clamor after our own desires. That would prepare the coming of the Lord. That would make straight his paths. That would make a wide highway for our Lord when he comes. So I want to speak about that desert highway, which is a journey of suffering, and nevertheless a journey filled with faith and overflowing with love. To speak about it, I turn to the 12th chapter of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. And we will visit a little while tonight that wonderful and epic figure of a woman who gives birth to the Christ. That mysterious lady who was at one and the same time an icon of the Virgin Mary. 
as well as the representation of the whole community of faith and every subset of it, every friendship in faith, every marriage which is sacramental, every family of faith, there she is, each of us a piece of the mosaic of her wondrous iconography. St. John writes, And a great portend appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in the pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. Now, some of the fathers of the church, scratching their head about it, said, It cannot be the mother of God, because she bore the child according to the original design, that design by which our parents lost when they sinned. But it was the sin of Eve, the sin of Adam, which brought the curse of crying out and pain and travail in the birthing of a child. So it cannot be she, but other fathers of the church rightly divined it. And they said, surely it is the mother of Jesus, because she did cry out, and in travail, in the language of the curse, she cried out in pain. But not when the child was born in the manger. She cried out when the child was born unto death on the cross. One of the earliest titles of Jesus, Jesus Christ, firstborn of the dead. And when he died, Stabat Mator Dolorosa, can any of us deny that she cried out? And who would heartless say that Mary, the mother of Jesus, did not feel all the pangs and pains of bitter birth, made more bitter by the loss of the child who was born? That woman here described as the mother of God. But at the same time, each one of us will know a tear, similar to that which she cried. Each one of us will suffer some reversals of life and disappointments. Each one of us will suffer something of the scandal, whereby she commended her son to the perfect will of God, his father. She was with child and she cried out in travail the pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. And then St. John adds, And behold, another portend in the heavens, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear the child, that he might devour her child when she brought him forth. There was a dragon, if you will, circling over the cross, and you can feel the wing of the dragon brush against you. When you hear Jesus cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthani, the dragon which says life is meaningless, there is no point nor purpose nor value to it, despair. The temptation which undermines our culture and makes us so secular and so material and so shallow. The people who grasp after meaningless 
surface facts because they are fearing there is no substantial foundation and there is no ultimate goal. We can feel the brush of the wing of that dragon circling, ready to devour. That dragon who wanted to devour Christ and could not know the secret that when Jesus Christ took our sorrow on his lips and our despair in his throat, he made it pray. So that from that moment onward, the greatest human suffering could become an occasion of grace and an opportunity of love. The dragon was confounded, but he didn't know it yet, circling overhead. That same dragon cast a shadow over us all these centuries later, still unable to learn the mystery which lies at the center of the ancient faith, the mystery which we enjoy, who share in the Eucharistic table. The dragon stood before the woman, ready to devour her child. She brought forth a son, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. After he was first born of the dead, he was raised up to the throne of God his Father. That is the authority of iron over which the world must stand. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection, God's judgment on the world. A judgment of mercy and clemency and peace. Hope for all of those who would have despaired. And then it says, And that woman, she fled into the desert, where she had a place for her prepared by God, in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. 1,260 days, three and one-half years. Three and one-half is half the number of seven. The book of Revelation loves numbers. Seven is the number of a full and complete week. And the full and complete week, which comes to its summation on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, is a day which is concluded by perfect rest. The day of perfect union with the Beloved. The day of homecoming. The finalization of all of life's fondest hopes. Seven. Perfect completion. Three and one half is right in the middle. Halfway to heaven. Halfway from our beginning. Halfway to our end. In media res. In the middle of things. That's where we always are when we hear the good news. No matter how young if we are stirred by faith and grace, no matter how old, if we are stirred by hearing the, the word of God, we are in the middle. And we can be changed. We can be transformed. There is time. We are always there. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Today, the day of salvation. We are always in the midst of things. The halfway time. If you will, in this season of football, the halftime 
three and one half years to the seven years of a lifespan. No matter how old nor young. Because we never know, do we, the day or the hour. The Slovak people from where I come have an expression they say mournfully when the young one dies. The old must, the young may. Pithy and true. All of us halfway, so far as we know. And that's where she must go, to that halfway place. Waiting, yearning, hoping. But not just waiting in a temporal space, but a desert place. She is taken to a desert for three and a half years, where she is nourished by God. Brothers and sisters, we are in that place tonight, where we are nourished by God. The nourishment is Eucharistic. The nourishment is the bread and wine transformed. The Paschal mystery, the suffering of Christ, his desolation, his desertion, his pain. Every time we eat and drink, St. Paul says, every time we celebrate the Holy Mass, St. Paul says, we celebrate his death, we proclaim his dying. We go into the desert with him, and our pain is turned into his prayer. Our suffering is turned into his offering. Our yearning and our groaning becomes the means by which we are nourished, healed, consoled, and sustained. This is the desert journey which the church asks us to undergo every Advent, that we might come further this year than former years, and that we might have courage to acknowledge before God the depth and the gravity of our lives, the depth and the gravity of our suffering. We might have courage to embrace the depth and the gravity of their suffering whom we love and make of it an earnest prayer of surrender to the providence of God. We are making a little parish retreat halfway to the second coming of our Lord Jesus, halfway to our own dying. We are retreating like the woman was fleeing into the desert. The dragon was pursuing her. And we feel pursued very often. We feel that we are being oppressed, not just by the secularism of our lifetime, but by the disaffection of many people who ought to be believers. We feel like we are pursued by scandal, and we are pursued by appetites unbridled, habits and addictions we've never mastered. We are pursued, and it is desolating. But in the midst of our desolation, that very same suffering that we endure, oppressed by others and afraid, can become the occasion by which we are edified and renewed. Christ Jesus can make it so. We feel we have in the modern era no time. We are filled with endless busyness and constant distraction. And we are fleeing from it. It is one of the great hazards of modernity. I think everyone likes to compare their schedules to everyone else to show how we are busier than we've ever been and that they could ever possibly imagine. And that we have no time, not for God nor man, not on Sunday or any Sabbath, 
or any holiday, not for our friends and not for our families, and not for prayer, and not for rest. It's a badge of distinction. We wear it nowadays very commonly. We have to stop admiring that. We have to stop patting ourselves on the back about how little time we have to sleep, how little time we have for recreation. And we have this big, lonely entertainment center in our house, the buttons of which we don't even know how to employ correctly because we never had any time to sit with it. We can't even begin to speak about reading the fathers of the church or Bible studies with that big, fat entertainment center with all those budgets and buttons that I can't even... I have a three-year-old nephew. I just wanted to listen to the radio for the Steeler football game. And I was puzzled. For an hour, I pushed the wrong buttons, and things were blinking and blurring and whirling. Then my three-year-old nephew came over and pushed one button. There were a whole table full of machines to push buttons on. I'm oppressed. I had to flee into the desert. We are fleeing. Of any age, the technology will catch up with you. All you young ones don't laugh too hard at us old ones. It's galloping faster and faster. And all of us are going to feel more and more useless. But there is a place for us. We remember the wonderful music of Bernstein's opera. There's a place for us. Somewhere, a place, peace and quiet and open air, wait for us somewhere. Here, in the desert, where the mother of God and the mother church has fled, where every friendship is safe and every marriage renewed, and every family upheld, every bond of love at home, here in this place there is nourishment in the midst of times. Three and a half years in the desert waste, there's a garden and a banquet. There's a Eucharistic table and a fellowship of love. This is our Advent theme, and I am grateful to have a little while to spend it with you this weekend. God save us from the coming weather.